Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with interesting people in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. The new COVID-19 variants are making a lot of headlines these days, as are the vaccines, both the Pfizer and Moderna and the newly approved Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Today, microbiologist and professor Dr. Rodney Rohde returns to the show. We're going to talk about the new variants and how they're similar and different. We're going to talk about the vaccines and the technologies that were used to make them. And then we'll look at some of the vaccination strategies of other countries. Okay, here's Dr. Rodney Rohde. Now, this is your second time here on the podcast. So thanks for coming back on. I really appreciate it. You bet, Dennis. It's always a pleasure and, and a privilege to join you. Oh, thank you. That's nice to hear. Um, so the last time you were on, we kind of took a real broad look at your career and a lot of the things you were doing. I want to be a little bit more specific or kind of focused this time. So mostly I want to talk about the new COVID variants that we've been seeing in the last couple of months. And I know you've, as as typical for you, you've done a lot of writing about, about this. Uh, so let's talk about some of those things. You recently wrote in your column in the Healthcare Hygiene Magazine about these variants. And I want to ask you about some of the terms that you used in there. There was variant of concern and then uh, the variant of investigation or variant under investigation. Can, can you explain what those mean? Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. You know, I didn't really know a lot about this until I started, you know, writing about it. And so this comes, this actually comes out of the UK and how they kind of handle uh, looking at new virus variants. And so okay. what they what they do is if they have concern, uh, anything that is concerning in the area of epidemiology, uh, immunology, or pathogenic properties, then they will raise that variant for formal investigation. So when they do that, they, they designate it variant under investigation, VUI, and they add a year, a month, and a number. So it's kind of a nomenclature thing for them. Okay. And then, and then what they do is they, they investigate a group of experts investigate that and following that risk assessment with, you know, a relevant expert committee, then they will either designate that variant, a variant of concern, a VOC, or they'll drop it depending on if they feel like it's important enough to, to follow and, and make sure it's not going to do anything, you know, interesting to the public. Do you happen to know, like, what is the qualification that makes the variant of concern? Like, is it how many people are affected? Yeah, or what? Yes, I think it has to do with, and, and I don't know the exact numbers, but I think they do look at cases, mortality, you know, all the epidemiology part of it, and immunological part, as well as how pathogenic it is. So how many cases, how many probably mortality and things like that. So they're looking at that. And and then they move forward with a concern if they feel like that it reaches that that plateau. And I'm sorry, I just don't have that actual number for you, but but that's mm -hmm. what they're they're looking at those areas. I kind of think about it, you know. I was thinking about it when I was um, finished writing with it because I've had other people ask me, and I I kind of like the analogy of this is kind of like when you hear in criminal investigations, you know, they talk about a person of interest, uh -huh. which is kind of where you're watching it. And then you have an actual suspect that is under, you know, full investigation. So I think if you kind of think of it in that way, they're kind of under, you know, they're kind of under interest or, or a variant of interest. And then once they become a suspect, they get redesignated. Okay. Okay. That actually helped. That's, That's kind of a way to help me to think about it. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So then we've got 
uh, currently, so we're recording this end of February 2021, and currently there are three known uh, COVID variants. So these are variants of concern, right? Right. That okay. is right. Okay. So we we have so the the big three, and I'm actually going to bring up a couple of others um, that they okay. kind of talked about. But the big three, of course, uh, and all three of these have now been identified in the United States as well as many under many other countries. Mm-hmm. And they seem to be, I guess, first of all, they seem to be generally across all of them seem to be spreading a little more easily and quickly among people and seem to also be causing more infections. So we can talk a little bit more about that, but that's the concern. And so let's start with um, one that was identified in the UK first. This variant is called B117. Mm-hmm. This variant has 23 mutations and several of those are in the spike like S protein, you know, and, and you know that that protein, that spike protein is the one that allows the virus to attach itself right. to the surface of human cells. So right now the research and, and what's been written about in general, uh, it looks and appears that this variant might be associated with an increased risk of death compared to other variants, but they're, you know, they're still following that and conducting the research to kind of confirm that. So that's one. And sometimes you'll hear them refer to that as the UK variant. Because uh, that's where it was first. That was where it was first identified. That's correct. Okay. The second one that we'll talk about is uh, from South Africa. So, again, that's where we believe. Again, let's say that's where we believe it originated. It's where it was first detected. Okay. And that variant is labeled B1351. And it has multiple mutations also in the S protein. Right now, there's no strong evidence that this one causes any more severe disease compared to the others. But they are watching it. Okay. Okay. And then there's one out of Brazil, detected in Brazil. And this one's designated P1. It has 17 mutations, including three in the S protein, that spike protein. And there is some evidence now showing that this variant might be less vulnerable to antibodies generated by a previous infection or the vaccine. So there's concern there with, um, you know, perhaps the vaccine or natural immunity may not be as complete as as with what you first experienced. So those are the big three. And, and then I don't know if you've heard about, uh, there's also one, uh, it's designated P2. It's another one out of uh, kind of a Brazil detection. It's, oh. shown, it's shown up in Britain. It's not a lot. I've not seen a lot about it, but I have seen it in the literature. Uh, there's, there's some mutations. Again, they haven't seen an explosion of it, so they're not really, they're just keeping an eye on it. So nothing crazy yet. And then interestingly, California, right here in the U.S., has a variation known as the L425R. That's a California variant. And uh, that's kind of circulating in the Los Angeles and surrounding counties. Again, they haven't really seen any major significance in cases and deaths and things like that, but they're keeping an eye on it because it seems to be growing in cases. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at just while we're on the topic, if you look at, I pulled this up yesterday because I was curious and CDC has begun mapping these and keeping reported case numbers. So let me just share a few numbers with you. Okay. That UK variant, the 117, as of yesterday, February 23rd, there have been 1,881 reported cases of that one and 45 states. And 
the South African variant, B1351, there's 46 cases, so much fewer, uh-huh. and, only, and only 14 cases. And then that Brazil version, there's only five so far in the U.S. and four states. And when you look at, I can't show it to you, but when you look at a map of the United States illustrating this, it appears California, Florida, uh, and then up in the uh, Wisconsin area and New York, those states appear to have, as of now, the most cases, four to 500. Everywhere else in the country is, uh, let's say, below 100. Okay, the, the most so, cases of the variants. You mean. Right, right. Okay. So, you know, they're, they're starting to map these, keeping an eye on them, uh, study them. And obviously what we want to make sure doesn't happen is, you know, if they become the dominant strain, do we have an issue with the vaccines? Do we need to mm-hmm. tweak that vaccine? Do we need to do something to try to adjust the coverage? Uh, and so I, I think that's the most concern right now. And again, it, it, it doesn't hurt to mention here that this is why it's still so very important to, you know, wear masks, to follow all the, all the guidelines, all the public health precautions, including not to travel as much, because if we can keep these different variants from jumping from, you know, California to Texas, at least slow it down. Right. Then we can study it a little, a little longer and kind of understand what's happening immunologically. So it sounds like the the B one one seven the the UK variant that's the most common right at least here in the US is that the same worldwide do you, do you happen to know you know it it is pretty common especially obviously in the UK it's mm. it's growing in other places uh, and those places of origin is where you're seeing the highest cases either Brazil or South Africa but they are spreading out and other countries are reporting greater cases and that that uk variant seems to be the one that's leading the pack so far and you mentioned that it it has a possible concern uh with the vaccines but what about like the the lab testing great question yeah does that affect like the uh uh, the way sens- you did- sensitivity of yeah the, yeah the good qu- you know right now i've seen nothing major about the uh, any concern right now about the sensitivity of just picking it up? So just the positive versus negative uh, for the audience. Now, obviously, this is such a good question because my wife asked me this about three weeks ago. She was just a really honest question about, well, how can they tell, you know, what's going on with this stuff? And and this is where the medical lab becomes so important, as well as public health. So you probably understand that when you start getting these types of little variants, then you typically are going to need to, you know, use some type of specific test to detect it. And that's typically the gold standard is typically sequencing the virus isolate. So, you know, let's say something comes in the lab, they run a rapid test or, or a PCR test to detect if it's positive or negative. And mm-hmm. then a certain proportion of those samples of those isolates are being sent to CDC or to other designated reference labs and even some university labs, because they're getting in on the game of helping with this sequencing uh, capability now in the U.S. And we're going to start trying to track, you know, is it is it B117? Is it is it 1351? Is it the P1? And so that's kind of the next step is now you have to look at sequence analysis of these isolates. And, and this is kind of a point of importance because... Those of us who who are in the world of molecular epidemiology and public health 
have long, long, long recommended that the United States have better sequencing surveillance coverage. Typically, state health labs will send a certain proportion of isolates to the CDC where they get sequenced there. Sometimes they get sequenced at the state level, but it wasn't really a, a big priority. Mm -hmm. And again, and not just in my opinion, but if you look at the data over the last 10 to 20 years, you, you would see this. But because of this pandemic, we we have had a big push now to, to grow that. And CDC has a special uh, website that is devoted to this. And, you know, they're ramping that up. And we're hoping to get to about a 10% coverage. Before before this pandemic, we were probably in the 1% to 3% of sequencing. And that's just not enough to know what's going on around the country and the regions and the geographical case numbers. So that's a good thing that this, again, this pandemic has really helped us open our eyes and listen to some of the warnings that had been happening for decades and surveillance and public yeah. health is critical, critical mm -hmm. going forward. And hopefully one of the lessons we learn out of this is that we don't stop doing that, that we keep it at a level that will help us detect. You know, it's almost like preparing for anything else, uh, a war or anything else. You want to have some type of sentinel surveillance out there at all times. So you can pick up, terrorist or you can pick up you know these invisible viruses and so mm -hmm. that's what i attribute it to is that we should be treating public health just like like the department of defense it should be ongoing funding it should be critical uh high priority in our country yeah i feel like i mean with as much attention that this is this has gotten rightfully so that i i i'm hopeful that that will happen yeah me too i, I mean if you, you think about forward. it if you think about it dennis i mean Right. I mean, it's it's killed more people right now than multiple world wars. Why would we not prepare for this invisible terrorist? I mean, it, that's what they are. That's what viruses are. They are basically mm. terrorists coming into our country and we need to be ready. You know, we need to add them to the list of things to be watchful for uh, so that we can prepare those vaccines and get ready for the public health. Let's uh, talk about the, the vaccines a little bit then. Now, and you mentioned a little bit about this, like they're trying to determine if these new variants uh, have any effect on the uh, on the on the vaccine efficiency right. effectiveness, I should say. the The three vaccines that are used right now, they're these are mRNA vaccines, right? Or, or actually, two of them. The, the two. I'm sorry, the two. Right. Yeah, Pfizer, Bio, BioNTech, and Moderna are the are the really cool new mRNA technology. And then the one most recently approved, the Johnson & Johnson, is uh, an, ad, an adenovirus, adenovirus carrier that delivers that spike protein to the human. So now okay. we have three approved. Let's talk about the difference then between the two, what the difference between an mRNA vaccine versus the adenovirus sure. vaccine. Sure. So now you're letting me get into my geekness here. I, this is Good, this is, good. That's why you're here. <laughs> this is, I, I can't emphasize enough to the audience and to others that I talk to how exciting the Pfizer and Moderna technology is. I mean, basically the mRNA technology is going to allow us now to rapidly not only um, start creating vaccines against new agents that we see in the future, but it's also going to allow us to adjust and uh, maneuver more quickly for uh, variants, which is what's happening right now. So in a nutshell, uh, what these companies are doing is they are engineering. And again, it takes time. So that's why 
you know, supply issue. I know everybody's wanting more, but it has to be done right. It has to be done, you know, as clean and as quality control driven as possible because this is so important. And they basically are taking pieces of mRNA that has the code for the spike protein of the virus. So for the audience, uh, messenger RNA is one of the key types of RNA, and it's usually referred to as the message. So it's part of our natural uh, dogma of biology. It's how DNA gets made into RNA and how RNA eventually turns into protein. So the company is taking advantage of that process in our bodies, and they're basically injecting mRNA with a code it's almost like a secret code against that spike protein into the arms of people. And then that messenger RNA directs our own ribosomes to create spike protein. And then that spike protein is, is then your immune system, your B cells and everything else is going to detect it. It's as foreign and they're going to ramp up antibodies against that particular spike protein, ultimately offering you antibody titers of protection against the natural infection. Just amazing. I mean, I, I just mm -hmm. it just makes me kind of smile when I talk about it. It's such a cool thing to think about that we're we're basically taking a normal process, engineering it, and creating a way to protect ourselves against new viruses. The uh, that so that's both Pfizer and Moderna, very similar processes. Okay. The John the Johnson and Johnson is a little more traditional, but it's still kind of cool. They have taken an, an an adenovirus, which is kind of a common virus of the respiratory system, mm -hmm. and they have taken out a piece of that genetic code and they've inserted again that critical spike protein code and then they basically in a way they're injecting you with that adenovirus and that virus is not going to harm you it's going to do what it's supposed to do it's going to get into your body and it's going to start replicating making proteins and things like that and it's going to basically express itself with spike protein and so, again, your body's going to respond to that as foreign, and it's going to create antibody against that, that SARS-CoV-2 virus. So a little different, but it works similarly, ultimately. And all three are really good. The Pfizer and Moderna, as everyone knows, has shown after that second dose about 94 95% efficacy. Johnson & Johnson's a little less. It's in the 80s. But as you may know, the, the great thing about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is that it's one dose. Right. So I've been telling people because they've been asking me, what should I do? Which one should I get? And I was like, well, right now, I don't think you have a choice. You're just going to want to take the first one you can get. Mm -hmm. um, but if there comes a time where you have a choice, you know, it, it's kind of up to you. I, I think it really doesn't matter because when you get that first dose of, of Pfizer and Moderna, the data is showing that it's already protecting you anywhere between 60 and 80 percent, which is kind of like the Johnson and Johnson single dose. So you're just going to get a little more extra protection if you get that Pfizer Moderna when you get that second dose. It's going to push it up into the, into the 90 percentile. So I don't think you can go wrong with any of them. They're all protecting you against severe illness and ultimately death. So even if you have a minor illness, you know, who cares? You're not going to you're not going to be in a hospital, you know, worrying about dying or something like that. So just just wonderful technology. I know you mentioned you know, how's it going to help us with variants? Right. Yeah. And that's really more of the Moderna and Pfizer. So that mRNA technology uh, has allowed 
those manufacturers to, to look at creating new versions relatively quickly. So if they start seeing major circulation, let's say, of the UK variant, and we realize that it's causing problems with mortality or something, then by the summer, they may be able to tweak that and change the code that's on that messenger RNA molecule so that it covers that new variant. So again, okay. just, just really cool, um, a really cool way to adapt, you know, in the, in real time, uh, which in, in prior to this year, you know, you would be waiting, okay, let's wait for another year. We have to rethink this and get ready for the next flu strain and what's going on. But this really helps you move along in months rather than years. Right. Yeah. I remember, you know, when all of this was starting out and the people were saying, you know, by the end of at the time, 2020, we would have had, you know, a vaccine. And I thought that's crazy. It's, it is, it's never taken, you know, I think, what was it like five years? Yeah. I mean, was was the kind of, when you, when you go through all the normal safety, you know, all the normal stuff, it would be anywhere from three to seven years. Mm -hmm. And so just, this is unbelievable. Now I'm going to give some credit here to the, to the prior administration because they got on board with operation warp speed. They knocked down some hurdles of, of just bureaucracy and without sacrificing safety. So, you know, really, I think really helpful as we go forward and thinking about how we protect the public. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative of that bureaucracy that's been kind of knocked down a little bit. Now, if they have to make you know adjustments to these vaccines to account for the variants, does that have to go through the whole FDA approval it process again? It okay. does, and, and a good a good question. I just I was wondering about this myself the other day. So it does, but what's interesting is they have already the current administration has already looked at that with their team of of experts in immunology and who they're looking at, and they're going to lower. They're not going to sacrifice safety again. But because it's the same vaccine technology, the same um, process, they're going to move that quicker through the EUA process, that emergency use authorization. So they won't have to have as many numbers in in the clinical trials. So instead of thousands, it may be in the hundreds or maybe up to a thousand instead of three to five or 10,000 people. So it could turn that around in months rather than, you know, a half a year or a year. Okay. Okay. That's, that's good news. Yeah. I think it's all All great. Yeah. We'll get back to our interview with Dr. Rodney Rohde right after this. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Dress Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Rodney Rohde on the People of Pathology podcast. Now, speaking of of clinical trials, and this relates to it in in a way, you wrote an article recently, I forget where it it was, but it's called Why Herd Immunity May Be Impossible Without Vaccinating Children Against COVID-19. 
And this kind of touches on, because a clinical trial involving children takes longer. That's right. Okay. okay. That article was in uh, The Conversation. Yeah, that was it. Okay. kind of an international uh, online publication that is tied to academics and experts that want to discuss specific uh, projects. And, and the way it came about was they actually just contact different experts, different universities. And so this question came to me from an editor is how this kind of came about. And they were interested in several stories. And one of them was about children. And so my wife's a pre-K teacher. And so I thought, you know, this is, this sounds like a, an interesting explainer article to write about. So that's kind of how it came about and kind of the basics of this, just for your audience, uh, if you get a chance to check out the article, the, the gist of it is that if you look at the United States, so we're just talking about the U S we have about 65 million people that are under the age of 16. So that makes up one fifth. That's 20% of the people in the United States. And even though children, you know, we were pretty sure they face less danger of severe illness or death, we still know they can spread the virus. And so that's that's concerning. And then if you look at kind of the general understanding that herd immunity is typically thought to be uh, at least in the 60 to 70 percent. But many experts now tell us that we might need to get into the 70 to 90 percent range because of this highly transmissible virus right okay so keep that keep that number in your mind kind of a 70 to 90 percent children are 20 percent of the population that leaves us about 80 percent of adults to be immunized and we already know some of those won't be vaccinated because of severe allergies or ingredients in the vaccine mm-hmm. and here's the here's the piece that worries me in a very recent poll by kaiser and some others there's actually several polls that show this that a large percentage, 32%, one-third of adults in a recent national poll say they either probably or definitely won't get inoculated. And another, I know, in another poll, and these are legitimate big-time polls, and another one, nearly half said they won't get the vaccine unless required to, or they want to wait and see how it works. So if you think about that, even even if you're conservative and say it's 30%, well, that only leaves 50% of adults and we can't get to the children. So you're looking, you're hoping to get to 50 to 60% immunity. So uh, it, it's just going to be difficult if we can't get children involved in the game plan, because that will help us reach that 70 to 80% range. So that was kind of my argument mm-hmm. uh, around it. Now I want to stop here and mention, and, and the article does this too, you know, even without children being vaccinated, it is still critically important for every adult that can and wants to, to get vaccinated because every tick of the percentage as we go up will decrease deaths and decrease spread. So it's ultimately critical. And we are vaccinating now about one and a half million a week. So we're getting better and better with this. So it's, it's just going to be important to keep moving forward. Right. The, the other issue around this, Dennis, is that this isn't on purpose. It's because, Children, when you when you look at vaccines uh, with federal emergency use authorization, the vaccines when they first did their clinical trials, it was it's always kind of approved for adults first. So Moderna's was only used for eighteen and older, and Pfizer was sixteen and older, and so that was why 
that's just kind of the way it goes. And so it was fast track for adults. Of course, that was important because COVID, you know, targets older people mm-hmm. uh, for, for death, especially. And so there's all sorts of factors around safety data. And when you're doing it for children, uh, it's just a process with the federal, the FDA, it takes longer. So it can take up to six months uh, to look at that safety data compared to two months for adults. So that's kind of why you start with adults and then you back up and they are doing that. So mm-hmm. the good news is Moderna and Pfizer are now looking at trials. They've already got them set up for ages one to 11 uh, and they're starting to do those types of of trials. So hopefully by summer ish, uh, we will have the ability to start population, uh, start vaccinating those younger populations. Okay. Okay. That's, that's good news then. Yeah, it is. And, and I mean, several experts are cited like, um, a former CDC, Tom Frieden, and I've mm-hmm. talked with Fauci, Dr. Fauci, and he's, he's listed in there. So uh, most of the experts believe this is, this is coming. It's just going to be, again, kind of a wait until the summer uh, when we have that safety data in place for children. Okay. I'm going to link that article in the show notes too, because I uh, think thank everybody, you so much. everybody should read that. It's really good. Now, now we've heard of the the, vac- the vaccination strategies, countries like Israel and India, and they're, and they're doing very well. They're, they're, their numbers are a lot higher than the U.S. What, right. what what can we learn from those countries? Yeah, two good two good examples. Um, so Israel, you might remember, uh, they've got about. Well, first of all, let's back up. Israel agreed uh, to work with Pfizer early on. They they just kind of volunteered to take as much and as quick of the vaccine as possible. So they kind of got an early start on it. Okay, and, and it became a. It, it's kind of a nice thing because it became a almost a real life experimental testing ground for, you know, a country. And so that Pfizer and others could watch that data. And so right now, as of yesterday, Israel has almost 90% of people 60 and older have gotten their first dose of Pfizer. Wow. Yeah. And, and in that group, so just one dose, they have shown the ministry of health in Israel has shown there's a 41% drop in infections in that age group and 31% drop in hospitalizations. So that's a, that's a significant uh, data point. I'd say and then, so, yeah. And then what the, what's cool, I mean, it's, it's just how they're looking at the data. So in comparison, they're looking at people 59 and younger, uh, and those, those have all had uh, one dose. So they're kind of comparing those two groups of so 60 and older. They had those big drops, 59 and younger, They've only got 30% of those vaccinated versus 90%. Okay. And so cases in those also have dropped by 12% and 5%. So they're looking at analysis of about a quarter of a million infections and it, and the epidemiological data, the real time in the field data, not clinical trials is showing those types of drops. So um, it's just adding evidence that these vaccines are definitely going to help you know, lower the severe illness as well as hospitalizations and mortality. So that's Israel um, looking good. Israel's about the size, interestingly, about the size, where did I read this, of one of the U.S. states. You know, so it's not, it, it's it's kind of a nice study because it shows, I think it's 9 million, maybe 10 million people, something like that. So it's like the okay. size of one of, our, one of our states in the U.S. So it's mm-hmm. a way to look at that population. India... India is interesting because India hasn't 
vaccinated as many. They're, they're definitely vaccinating, but they have this issue in India of uh, rural and urban settings. They've gotten more people vaccinated in the urban settings, the city settings. The rural, as you might expect, is really spread out, kind of some harsh terrain and things like that. But they are seeing drops in cases and deaths. And so there's all sorts of hypotheses and 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 people talking about it. I, I was just going to mention a few of these to you. Okay. So I think mo- I think a lot of it is because they've gotten big urban centers vaccinated. And so that's where most of the people are. But a lot of experts are talking about several other factors that I'm going to throw out at you, which is kind of interesting. One is heat and humidity. A PLOS one article that was published recently, looking at hundreds of articles, you know, and I've seen this too. I've talked about it early on in the pandemic. Coronaviruses seem to be less active when the humidity and the heat is really high because it helps. If you can imagine humidity, it's invisible moisture and it helps kind of, trap viral particles and, and help them fall to the ground oh, okay. uh, versus a, a, a cold and dry climate. Um, you know, the hypothesis is that viruses stay afloat longer. So that, that may play a part. India is hot and humid. Uh, there's also a point of people that in India, there's so many diseases that are rampant, you know, m- malaria, dengue fever, typhoid, hepatitis, cholera, things like that. And so they talk about how Indians lack access to clean drinking water and sanitation. So some people speculate that they just have super robust immune systems, which is kind of an interesting hypothesis, just stronger immune systems. And then the the other factor that I've read is that India is a much younger country. Only 6% of Indians are older than 65. So, and more than half of the population is under 25. So just looking at that, you could see how, your mortality is going to drop quicker if you don't have many old people once you start vaccinating. And perhaps, you know, ultimately perhaps there's a milder variant. People have talked about that, but I think the truth for India is that we just don't know for sure. I mean, it's kind of interesting. They haven't immunized as many people, uh, but something's going on there. And so I believe, like a lot of people have talked about it, it's, we're just not real sure, but it's probably a combination of all those factors. And, and ultimately, what I like to tell people is this is for scientists to argue about and hypothesize about, but who cares? <laughs> people right. are not people are not dying and, and things are getting better, right? So Right. That's the important part. Right. Of so just in, two interesting countries to keep an eye on, I think. What about contact tracing like have you heard of what they're doing in australia and new zealand where they have a smartphone app and you you know check in wherever you go in case there happens to be someone you know who's infected that that you know that news comes out later and then they yeah trace. you know i haven't dug into that a lot my wife mentioned it to me the other day because she was talking about it she has a smartphone i'm sorry a smart watch okay and she's we're walkers and we exercise and so she, that's what she uses it for but she said she had seen a lot of a lot of stories coming out about countries and even places in the US where they're starting to find that you can through all the data that's collected kind of understand your contacts and the, the things you were mentioning and how they're using that so it, it's an interesting thing to think about artificial intelligence and smart watches and smartphones and how you track movement and how that may be playing a part mm-hmm. I, I will say going backwards you know it's always a little easier in hindsight 
but I've been saying this for a year because I've done this for 30 years, where the U.S. failed, well, we've had some issues. <laughs> let's let's face it. We've had some issues with testing right. strategy, uh, and, and we've hopefully learned some lessons. But we, I mean, I, I'm just going to say this. I think the U.S. gave up on contact tracing pretty quickly. And, and there's a number of reasons uh, for that, including mm-hmm. – how our government's set up, how the people are super independent. I mean, there's a lot of reasonings behind that. But if you look at countries that had hard mandates, uh, mass mandates, had hard rules for contact tracing and isolation, they have done a much better job. I mean, it, the data is there. You can argue with me all you want, but the U.S. has a half a million deaths. We have 30 million infections, and that's probably a very low ball number. And you look at other countries, we are double double the mortality uh you know five we have five percent of the world's population we have 20 percent of the death wow i mean the data speaks for itself i mean we have done a poor job of contact tracing and isolation and what's sad dennis is that pardon my french but contact tracing all public health people know that it's just hard ass work and you have to want to do it And, and it's difficult and it's hard and I think we just didn't follow through for a number of reasons. Uh, and I, I'm not going to sit here and beat it to death, but but we could have done a much better job and probably prevented a lot of deaths and 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 anguish if we would have stuck with that early on and worked with businesses and found a way to kind of figure out how we could have done that without killing the economy. And and I know it's it's a lot easier in hindsight, but we certainly could have done a better job with contact tracing and testing and things like that. That's definitely true. You you mentioned the testing, so and this kind of falls into your sort of uh, your your wheelhouse, I guess, because uh, you're always very vocal about uh, the importance of lab lab professionals, especially now during the pandemic, right? And of course, you've written about this in a lot of places. I've heard you recently on the. Uh, the, the ASCP podcast, I think, Inside the Lab. Right, right. Yeah. L- let's talk again, this what this additional workload of the COVID testing, how, how is that affecting the lab staff? You know, it's it's troubling and, and a bit scary. First of all, let me thank all of the lab professionals out there for yes, yes, the magnificent, definitely. magnificent job you've done uh, through really tough situations. But it is wearing on them. In, in the podcast you mentioned, we we had several other people on, and we talked about really over the past 30 years and how everything has, has been growing anyway towards, you know, shortages and burnout and, you know, we need higher salaries. There's just a lot of stuff going on in the medical lab, but this pandemic really brought it to a head in so many ways. I think one of the things I've witnessed and watched for my new alumni is that uh, these are these are people I know and I taught and some of the best, strongest, dedicated young professionals that I know. And this pandemic, because of the massive workload and the and the inability to get breaks, you know, some of these people are working 12 hour shifts, 7, 10, 14 days in a row. And and and, and they feel an obligation because sometimes there's just no one left to do the night shift. You know, they're just working night after night just rough stories and and they're actually considering you know leaving the field that worries me because these are people that aren't you know undedicated these are amazing professionals i taught them and and it's not just my program just other people around the state and i've heard mm-hmm. it from across the country and so i worry about that 
um, in the issues of shortages. It also affects education uh, because we've got, you know, it, it's shown. So there's a there's kind of a, a double edged sword here. It's put a light on us. It's raised visibility. But we have to think about how we're going to make the future generations understand that we need them. We need them to stick with it, even if times get tough. And that workload issue, that salary issue, uh, some of those issues are prob- problematic, and we're going to definitely have to work on that uh, as we kind of move forward. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Dennis. It, it's as you know, I'm passionate about this. I'm going to yeah. continue continue to pound the pavement in the in the digital media networks to get. I mean, we got great numbers. We have 45 or 50 applications right now for our next group of 20. Wow. So, yeah, it's a good thing in Texas. We have plenty of applicants. The hard part for me is when I see those new new graduates and alumni, you know, two, three, four, five years out, and they're so they just getting beat up. You know, they're just working themselves right. to death. And I think we just need to think about how we're going to make this better in the healthcare. There's so much to talk about here that almost takes another podcast. But, <laughs> right. yeah. you know, there, there's an the issue of salary and there's the issue of they just need more people in the trenches. And so that ties it to revenue and how the laboratory is reimbursed. And I mean, there's just so many factors that we need to be thinking about. Right. Right. Yeah. You, you cover a lot of uh, you and the other guests on the ASCP podcast, you cover a lot of those things. I'll, I'll link that as well. Uh, you, you mentioned that it sh- should be another podcast. So there is yeah. that one. We'll, yeah, there we'll is that, that one. In. And I'm also doing uh, just to throw it out there, I'm going to be doing a similar webinar for uh, Cardinal healthcare, Okay. Um, I think it's March 31st, and so that'll be coming out. But it's also about staffing uh-huh. and, the, and those issues. Okay, that'll be great. I'll look forward to that. All right, Dr. Rohde, this has been super interesting. I, I really have learned a lot from you today. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to mention before we wrap up? You know, first of all, thank you again for having me on. Uh, it's so important that all of us, including medical laboratory professionals and others in healthcare, Get out there and share this information. Don't be afraid to be an advocate for your profession. Speak the truth. The science matters. And I just really appreciate the opportunity to to do that on your show. And thank you for everything you're doing. Great. Big thanks to Dr. Rohde. Now, I've got some really exciting things to tell you. But first, here's a preview of the next episode with Dr. Richa Saxena. And as far as pathology is concerned, like uh, because pathology is my specialty, right? Uh, we know that it's a foundation of clinical work, and it's covering all the facets of patient care, from testing to diagnosing to driving the management plans and to treat patient. So this field, this is the field that naturally fascinates critical thinkers and problem solvers. When I was a student, though, uh, that wasn't the case. Uh, a residency in one of the clinical streams was the most obvious choice and most students would come across career in pathology unintentionally. Mm-hmm. However, uh, this was not uh, how this came about for me while doing my residency in dermatology. Uh, then uh, I got an opportunity to participate in multidisciplinary meeting tumor boards and I witnessed the pathologist describing specific tissue findings, growth, as well as microscopic, and based on those, their diagnosis, which ultimately directed patient care. And it was actually during this time that I realized the critical role of pathology.
It's always great to have Dr. Rohde on the show. I'm really glad we were able to have him back. And I will have the links to both the articles we talked about, as well as the ASCP podcast episode that he was on. All of that will be in the show notes. That's at peopleofpathology.podbean.com. If you're using the new Clubhouse app, you're going to want to check out the discussion hosted by pathologist and friend of the show, Dr. Syed Hoda, along with Dr. Demetrios Satiris. On Tuesday, March 9th at 2 p.m., they're hosting a discussion. It's called The Culture of Medicine, What Needs to Change? And that's Tuesday, March 9th. It's 2 p.m. Pacific time. Also, you've heard me mention The Pathologist magazine several times on this podcast. The editor and friend of the show, Michael Schubert, just wrote an article called Have You Heard, which is all about pathology podcasts. So if you remember the Megapod crossover episode, it's everybody that was involved there. We were all interviewed for this article. So it's really cool to see that. A big thanks to Michael for putting that together. And lastly, Feedspot just recently came out with the list of the top 20 pathology podcasts you must follow in 2021. And I'm very happy to announce that the People of Pathology podcast is number two on that list. So big thanks to Feedspot as well. That's such an honor to even be included on that list. And don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. And if you like this episode, maybe you know someone who is interested in the COVID variants or has questions about the vaccines, please share this episode with them. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can follow the link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. Thank you.